Hi, my name is Susie, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, y'all. Through the grace of a loving God and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and people like you, I've not found it necessary to drink or take a mood-altering drug since March 27, 1979, and I am truly grateful for that. I am, um, on a, on a good day, very emotional, <laughs> and mornings are not my favorite time of the day. I come to life at about 10 p.m. Why I was asked to speak in the mornings beyond me. Um, I think it's a joke. There's uh, a lot. I, I have been so fortunate. There are a lot of people in Sacramento that I know. Um, this is the third time I've been asked to come here and speak in Sacramento. And as a result of that, I, you know, I look out in a town that you know, a year ago, I had never even been to before, and I have not just people that I know, but friends that I know that I could call from Denver, Colorado, if I were in any kind of trouble or needed any kind of help, and I know that they would be there. And that's because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I think what also goes along with that, though, is jokes on having me as the morning speaker, um, because people get to know you. Um, just to, I am, I am so totally blown away that I get asked back places, you know, that, that's, uh, not something that was in my past. Um, I can remember being a little kid and the neighbor lady taking the three of us, my brother and sister and I, to church and, and the church people saying, you know, if you can't get her to stop crying, you gotta not bring her back anymore. And, and I wondered for so long why I didn't feel like I belonged in church, you know? And I never could get in touch with why it was that I was crying, but I did know that I, I was not a happy camper. And, and that's no doubt what led me to drink. Um, I'm, I'm a real big believer that I am an um, alcoholic from the day that I was born. I don't, you know, at some point, yes, it is true. At some point, I probably drank... Um, in a way that was not alcoholically, but I never drank socially. You know, from the time that I first picked up a drink until I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I drank to get drunk. And I was really very surprised to find out that there were people that drank just because they thought they'd kick back and have a drink. I, um, I still to this day am totally blown away by that. You know, the people that would drink a couple drinks and say, oh, I'm starting to get a little bit dizzy. I'm gonna have to stop drinking. And, and I just, I mean, I was so confused. I would just look at them and think, no. No, you've got it all wrong. And I, you know, it's, it's kind of funny to me today, but I'm still real serious, too. It's like, I, I, what a waste of booze. You know, that they sit there with their drink and the ice melts. And it, it's beyond me, you know, because I, uh, I drank, I, I started off at the very top. You know, I started off with the, with the good stuff. I started off with Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill wine <laughs> and worked my way down. Uh, and I, uh, I drank because I ran around with a crowd that drank, and I, um, I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be cool. And I drank an entire... What are, I don't even know how booze comes anymore. It's great. You want to talk about the boog book really coming true. I'm on totally neutral ground. I, I think it's a fifth. Like a big bottle, anyway. 
it was a lot, and I didn't get drunk. And so I faked it. Um, just like I faked everything. You know, I was, I was an absolutely wonderful actress. I mean, wonderful. I, on the stage and off. And um, it worked out real well. They talk about that in the big book. You know, I was the director, the actress, backstage, front stage, audience. Um, I'd, I'd try to control everything. In any case, I drank this Boone Farm Strawberry Hill wine in a horse pasture in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And I look back on it now and think, you know, I mean, it's not exactly a great place to start drinking. It's not real glamorous. And to top it off, I didn't even get drunk. And so I still didn't feel like I belonged. Well, I, I faked it. You know, the great actress came through, and, and I stumbled around just enough. And, and I stumbled around enough to still have a scar on my leg from where I ran into a glass coffee table later that night. That was great. You know, it's like I really didn't mean to do that, so it looked real, you know? And, you know, I had blood going down my leg and everything, and I was giggling and laughing and thinking they're going to know. And it, it was not too long after then, because I didn't drink for a very long time, uh, and it was not too long after then that I remember those times and wished that I could go back to where I was faking being drunk instead of faking being sober to get by. You know, that, that I was looking at myself and, and walking into the bathroom on those sleazy bars that I went into and, and looking at myself and saying, get a grip. You got to get a grip. You got to pull this off. You got to pull it off one more time. And to walk out, not so much. I, I was concerned about what other people thought about me for a while, but mostly because the bars were starting to cut me off at a certain amount. So I had to act like I was semi-sober in order to get that next drink. And everything that I did revolved around where that next drink was coming from. And I did anything that I had to do to get that drink. And that made me sick to my stomach. So then I had to drink. You know, then it was no longer a, a matter of this is fun. And, and, and I drank to oblivion. I mean, I drank until I just totally passed out. But, you know, I, I was thinking about that earlier. I was reading some things in the big book. And, you know, I, I say that like I really had a choice. No, I didn't have a choice. I didn't, not only did I not have a, a choice on picking up a drink and not being able to stop after I picked up one, but I didn't have a choice on picking up the drink to begin with. I had absolutely no power whatsoever. I started drinking when I was 15 years old, and I was never any more ready for Alcoholics Anonymous than I would ever be at 19. I was totally, completely alcoholic. And it took another two years until I got into Alcoholics Anonymous. I get, I used to get angry. I, uh, I get saddened when I hear people say to me, well, thank God that you didn't have to go through a lot of pain. And I think, honey, <laughs> you want to talk about pain, I can tell you about pain. You know, I can tell you about waking up with little bugs crawling on me that weren't there. I can tell you about kangaroos crossing the street in downtown Memphis that weren't there. And I can tell you about guilt, and I can tell you about remorse, and I can tell you about that impending doom 24 hours a day unless I was totally passed out. And I can tell you about the shakes and the cold sweats and throwing up blood, and I can tell you about pain. And yes, I came in when I was 21, but boy, was I ready to be here. And it's not fair to tell somebody that's female, that's young, that they're not ready yet. 
They'll know if they're ready or not. And what our job is, is what that little slogan says that we see all the time. I am responsible when anyone reaches out. The hand of Alcoholics Anonymous needs to be there. You know, otherwise, we're going to be sending those people back out into the streets. And I don't know where you were when you came in, but the streets didn't want me anymore. You know, I was somewhere between a rock and a hard place because I wasn't real sure Alcoholics Anonymous wanted me, and I was real sure the streets didn't. And I didn't know if I had it in me anymore to do what it took to survive out there. You know, I was tough. Hell, I was raised tough. I understood tough real well. I came from an alcoholic family. I was abused as a kid. I had all the reasons in the world to drink. But you know what I found out? I sit in meetings with people that weren't from alcoholic families. I sit in meetings with people that weren't abused as children. I sit in meetings with people, you know, that, that, that velvet gutter that she was talking about, you know, they didn't hit the same kind of bottoms that I hit, and it doesn't matter. Now, I do not mean to imply that that does not have impact on my life. I am sure that it does. There's a lot of positive things that I got out of it, too. By God, I learned how to survive. I learned how to make it out there on the streets. I learned how to be tough, and yes, I shut off my feelings, but I needed my feelings shut off. You know, it never occurred to me when my parents were raising me and, and I would get so angry with my mother because she would be crying. I mean, she cried all the time. The woman was miserable. She was absolutely miserable and it never occurred to me to reach out to her and tell her, Mom, everything's going to be okay and I'm here. Mom, is there anything I can do to help? Why are you crying? Do you need to talk? You know, it never occurred to me that when my dad came home and hit me that it was because he was scared. I never saw the fear in him. I never saw anything that was going on except what was going on in Susie's little world. And everything revolved around me. And if it didn't fit into my little world, I didn't have any time for it. And as a result of that, I missed the reason why things the way that they were. My parents did the best that they could do with what they had. And it was a lot. You know, in spite of all that had happened, I can look back and I can honestly say I was too loved. That's just not true. For me to sit up here and say, I drank because they didn't love me enough, there was nothing anybody could have ever done for as long as I lived that was ever going to prove to me that I was loved. Because I wanted excuses to drink. And the people that come from the alcoholic homes that I hear talk, from the non-alcoholic homes that I hear talk, say the same thing. They drank because they were raised in good Christian homes. kind of makes you wonder what we're doing in our good Christian home. You know, that maybe somewhere along the way I picked up, maybe the problem is me. And where I picked that up was in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That I was told when I walked in the door of Alcoholics Anonymous, every problem that you will ever have, the solution is in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, you can look other places later. And yes, you may be able to find them later. But for now, I don't want you reading anything but the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous because that's where your answer is. And I thought, you know, as I got later on and started overeating when I was about four years sober, you know, and I thought, don't talk about that in there. You know, and, and I brought it up and my sponsor said, oh, I think perhaps it does. Go back and... See if you can find it. And I said, well, where is it? And she said, start on page one. 
So I was just obstinate enough to do that, you know, and as a result of it, I got the big book crammed down my throat, and thank God I did, you know, and it is in there. It is in there, every problem that I've had when I tried to quit smoking. It was in there on how I was supposed to quit smoking, and I, and I didn't smoke anymore. You know, when it was time for me to stop overeating, I stopped overeating because there were answers that were in here. Now, th this is real easy for me to say today at almost 10 years of sobriety. I didn't come in here, you know, on my knees going, please, God, let me get sober, I'll do anything. I came in on my knees, but only because I couldn't get up. <laughs> and, um, and I was saying, please, God, something, but it wasn't, I want to be sober, because that was the last thing I wanted to do. You know, I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous because I wanted to be sober. I, I was really very happy that that was going on for all of y'all. Um, because, I, I, you know, I thought that it was neat that it could be there for those that it would help. But it wasn't going to help me, so there really wasn't any sense in even starting it. Um, I came in via the Memphis court systems. I came in because I was given a choice by a judge between um, going to jail for a year in the Tennessee State Penitentiary or going into treatment. Now that today seems like a very easy choice to me. At the time it, it, was, it was easy, but I chose to go to jail, okay? Um, there's a good reason for that though. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't totally removed from reality. I knew people that had been in jail. I ran around with them. They were my buddies, okay? And I knew that you could get alcohol and drugs in jail. I didn't know anybody that had been in treatment, but they had told me that the reason why I was going to go to treatment was to see if I could maybe get off the alcohol and maybe I would then be able to return to society as a useful member. Well, I didn't have any desire to return to society or as a useful member of society. Um, I was pretty much through with that. You know, I tried that when I was four, and it didn't work. So I uh, just kind of ducked out for a while, you know. So it was it, it was not real appealing to me. I'd heard that in prison that, you know, you stay in there and you do alcohol and drugs and people do things to you, and that it's not real fun, but that you end up going back a lot anyway, so you don't have to worry about returning to society too much because it usually doesn't work. And I thought that'll work out real well. Besides that, it'll make for really good stories. And I liked the story. You know, I, I, I was into it, boy. I, I was, you know, I, I liked to tell the things that I did, and I liked to lie and tell things that I didn't do. Um, I did that in AA, too. You know, when I got here, I was like, I do not want to be here. But after I settled in, boy, I could tell a drunk log. You know, that was not true. But, boy, was it great. You know? People would say, boy, I really identify with you. And I think, bless your heart. Glad you made it. Uh, I didn't think that my story was enough, you know, after I got here. And you know how we are. We don't want to be alcoholics, but if we're going to be here, we're going to be the worst alcoholic that ever lived. You know, they talk about that in the big book, too. Um, it's called ego. Um, so anyway, I, I decided that I was going to go to jail. And... Um, I, um, you want to talk about intervention. You know, you hear about intervention now where you go in and, you know, confront whoever it is that's in your family, your significant other or whatever they call it now. And, you know, they end up in treatment and live happily ever after and everything. Well, um, I got interve intervened with, and, and it was with God. 
you know, God decided that I was going to go to treatment. And before I ever even knew what hit me, I was in treatment. And not real happy about being there. Um, I was really scared. I was really belligerent. And I uh, would like to say that I bordered on an obnoxious, but that would be very complimentary. <laughs> and I was not... I, I, originally, okay, in all fairness to the people that were in the treatment center that I went through, uh, I was not welcomed with open arms. Not because they would not have liked to, and not because they didn't have it in them or that they didn't do it in the end, but I didn't, you know, I came in kicking and screaming and throwing my arms around and had a filthy, filthy mouth. I mean, I, uh, I could outcuss any sailor and then some. And, and that was a, a, a protection, another one of those, those walls that I put up to keep people away from me. And, and it worked when I first went into treatment, and that was fine. I walked into the doors of a place called Grace House in Memphis, Tennessee. And um, I weighed 72 pounds. I was um, a kind of gray color. Um, and someone later told me that the description they wrote down on my intake was that I looked like a skeleton with gray skin draped over me. And I was dead. And every ounce of me was dead. I didn't have anything left anymore. You know, it was like I, I was being sucked through this black hole that I couldn't get out of and then didn't want to anymore. Just there was, there was this huge part of me that just didn't even care anymore. I couldn't take the pain anymore. I couldn't take the shakes anymore, so I drank all day, every day. And the only time that I wasn't drinking was when I was passed out, and there were many times that I woke up and, and was in a pool of my own vomit to where I had drank when I wasn't just in a blackout, but in my dreams I would get up and I would get booze. And uh, I lied and cheated and stole and did anything that I needed to do to get that booze, and I, and I just... All I wanted to do, I, I could really relate with what was said earlier, all I wanted to do was just lay down and die. And I got really, really angry when I'd wake up again. Um, the four horsemen that they talk about, you know, they were always with me. I always felt that way. And then there was another part of me that, um, that, that had some kind of hope in there, you know, that would say, well, you know, maybe you can get out of this and maybe you don't have to die. I had known that I was an alcoholic. That was not difficult for me. You know, people that drink like I drank are alcoholic. And, and it was very easy for me to spot, you know. But I had given up on that I would, you know, I didn't try and control my drinking anymore. I did at one time, but I stopped that, you know. I said, I don't want to stop drinking. You know, this did not make sense to me. I like this stuff. I like the way I feel. Why would I want to stop? And more than anything... I was scared. And I was really, really scared. And that's the way that I walked into the doors of Grace House. And, and, and there was this tug of war that went on inside of me, you know, that big part that was saying, you're not going to make it, you might as well take another drink, you might as well lay down and die because it's just not going to work. And then there was this other little voice on there saying, well, listen to what they have to say. And the other voice was going, no need. 
you know, and it was back and forth, and then I wonder why they thought I was schizophrenic. Um, I was. You know, the amazing thing happened when he got the booze out, I stopped acting like a schizophrenic. Um, so I walked in there with all that pain and, and remorse. I mean, just incredible remorse. I had just gotten out of jail, and I had been there. I don't even know how long I'd been there because I didn't want to call anybody um, because I had written off everybody that cared about me. So I didn't really know who to call. I had an idea that a friend of mine would probably come and get me, but I wouldn't make the phone call while I wallowed around in self-pity, and boy, I did it well. But then I, being a survivor... I uh, only wallowed so long, and then I made the phone call. I had uh, long, long before then stopped taking showers um, because it's a kind of remarkable thing that happened to me. I never did do any drugs. I mean, I never picked up. I, I used to smoke marijuana, but I didn't even particularly like it. <clears throat> and I really thought that I was neat that I didn't do drugs, you know. So um, now keeping in mind that my junkie friends were the ones that took me home at night, Okay, they're the ones that picked me up off the barroom floor and said, Suze, you know, I think you got a drinking problem. Well, you might kind of figure out that there's problems when junkies are telling you that you've got a drinking problem. <laughs> but I didn't do drugs. And I knew because I didn't do drugs, everybody was going to want me to do drugs, so they were going to drug me. So I stopped eating because they couldn't drug my food if I didn't eat my food. Okay? And that made perfectly good sense to me. It talks about that in the big book, too, that our way of life eventually seems real normal to us. And that seemed normal to me. Now, doesn't it make sense to you if you thought someone was going to give you an overdose of drugs in your food that you wouldn't eat your food? I mean, y'all are alcoholic. Of course, you're afraid to nod, but I know. <laughs> you don't have to nod. I know. So it made perfectly good sense to me. And then I stopped taking showers because they could come in and get me while I was showering. And I didn't want them to get me. Now, this is spoken from a woman who was ready to die, right? Now, there's a little contradiction there. You know, I'm, I'm, I slept with a shotgun by my bed and a knife under my pillow, okay, because I didn't want them to get me. I wanted to go, but I didn't want them to be the ones to get me, okay? I wanted to choose how I was going to go, and I didn't particularly want it to be violently. Um, so, and then my toothbrush, I mean, what better place to stick many, many hits of acid? <laughs> you know, you'd never suspect it. You'd brush your teeth, it would go down, you'd be off, you'd be dead, right? <laughs> so I stopped brushing my teeth. Now, all of this worked real well, um, because it's, it helped me save a lot of time. <laughs> you know, that could be spent drinking. Now, I bet you're wondering how was she able to drink, you know, if they were really out to get her, wouldn't the normal thing be put it in her, put it in her beer? Well, that would have been the normal thing, except for I protected my beer. <laughs> I went to the store myself, okay, and I got the cleanest tops off the beer that I could find, I mean, like really, really clean, and then I would run them under hot water. And then I would get fresh paper towels. I'd tear off like 12 of them to make sure that it wasn't anything that they had touched and they wouldn't go that far back, okay? <laughs> and I'd, you know, be pulling off that 12 of them and throwing them away and taking them out and then running it over the top of it about 45 times, you know? And my mom would tell me, Sue, 
um, the alcohol probably kill any germs. And I was like, she's one of them. <laughs> and then I would drink it all really, really quick, you know. And if I had to go to the bathroom, I took it with me. And if I was in a bar and I never let anyone else go get my drink for me, I would always go up to the bar and I would get the drink myself and I'd watch the bartender and um, I would get two, okay? Because he wouldn't know which one was really mine. So, and, and I could watch him and I always had these built-in mechanisms to watch him and then that worked out real well too because I always had two beers and I always drank them really fast. And um, so I, I'd take people's money but I wouldn't let them buy me beer. And I wasn't a prostitute either. Figure that one out. You know, there's all kinds of forms of prostitution. So I, I, um, I walked in just a little bit paranoid, okay? <laughs> one of the things I couldn't figure out at the time, one of the things that was said to me when I walked in was that I, um, one of the requirements for staying there is that I had to take a bath every day. And I looked at him like, so? You know, that's, that's easy. And, and I look back on it now and I really feel sorry for the people that had to be around me because, I, you know, when you stop taking baths and you stop washing your hair and brushing your teeth and, and wear the same clothes every day for weeks on end, um, you're not real fun to be around. Um, and that may account for why they didn't come with open arms, too. Um, the way that I walked in inside is entirely different from the way that I ended up projecting to these people, you know, I was so obnoxious, and, and I was cute, you know, I mean, I was so cute, it would make you want to throw up cute, and, and it did make a lot of people feel that way, um, when I went in for the initial interview, the lady who was the director of the house, who later became my sponsor, and is still my sponsor today, was the one that took my intake, she had been, you know, doing this stuff for quite some time, you know, so she's got her little form and asking me all the questions and, and I'm telling all the lies and, and she knows it and I know she knows it and she knows I know she knows it and, and we're doing this back and forth and, and she's no doubt thinking how really useless all this is and she pushes her form back and she asked me, she asked me how old I was and I said I'm 21 and she said, you know, there's some things that, that are okay to lie about because that's, that's part of this whole thing, but then there's some things that I need to know because you're going to have to go to a doctor later. And, and one of the things that I really do have to know to know where you stand is really how old you are. And I said, I really am 21. And she said, okay, honey, you know, and kind of patted my hand. And I was so confused. I thought, you know, why would I lie about that? And the reason why she was questioning it was because she had written down when she guessed my age when I walked in as being 35. And I found out about that later. You know, I stayed confused about a lot of things when I was there, and, and that was one of them. You know, that, and then, then, then it made sense, you know, and I look back on how I looked when I walked in and how I behaved. I, I was old. I mean, 35 was, was real complimentary. I was so old so tired and and we talked you know and and she stopped using the little form and she just started asking me questions and one of the questions that she asked me was when my last drink was and I told her that my last drink was the day before 
and she said, you know, how much did you have to drink? And, and I think I may have told her the truth. I really don't remember. But I really hadn't had that much the day before. I do remember that. And she said to me the words that I try to remember any time that I get out of gratitude about where I came from. She said to me, Susie, I want you to remember the date, March 27th, 1979. And I was, you know, like really confused. I was like, why? And she said, because it's going to be your sobriety date. You never have to take another drink as long as you live. And the feeling that I got from that was a sudden rush of, thank God, that was quickly followed by, it's not going to work, I can't do it. So I was scared of getting sober. I knew how to do drunk, and I knew how to do sick, but I had no idea what was on the other side with being sober and living any hour at any time without knowing that I could have a drink, and I was terrified. And she said, but the way that you're going to do it is the same way that I've done it. You're going to do it one day at a time. You're going to do it 24 hours at a time. And I, in my usual flippant manner and all my humility, said, yeah, well, I think I need to do it an hour at a time. And she said, yeah, I think you're right. (laughs) I thought, hmm, I like this lady. Shouldn't put up with any crap. And then I really haven't started yet. So she went on to tell me that she had not had a drink in, um, since October 23rd, 1957. And I was blown away. I was born in 57, you know. So did, being the brilliant one that I was, I figured that one up real quick. But, you know, she was talking 21 years of not having a drink, and I thought she must do drugs. And she said, or a mood-altering drug. And I thought, and reads minds. I'm going to have to be real careful because if she starts knowing what's really going on in my head, she'll have me locked up. And I had always suspected I was just a little bit crazy. And even without the alcohol, I thought, you know, it's really going to show through. At least when you're drinking, you can say I was drunk. But when you're just crazy, you're just crazy, you know, and and they they put you away. And and I was crazy. I mean, you know, my, my worst fear was confirmed. I really was crazy. But she didn't seem too terribly concerned about that. That day was the start of, of what's been... what The only way that I know how to describe what's happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous is that, you know, my story is more of a love story than it is anything. It's, it's the love of Alcoholics Anonymous that was here when I wasn't even ready for it. It was the love of that woman that would tell me things that I didn't want to hear and I didn't think I was ready to hear, but she knew I needed to hear or I was going to be back out there and if I went back out, I was going to die. And she knew it. And she loved me when I couldn't love myself and y'all loved me when I couldn't love myself. And she believed in me when there were people that had bets on me in that house that I wasn't going to make it. And she had the faith in God that I didn't have. And she had the faith in him, not in me. Not in me. I'm an alcoholic. What alcoholics do is drink again. But she had the faith in the power of God and the faith in the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she gave that to me totally and completely unselfishly. 
she was there for me 24 hours a day, and I was so mean to that woman. She didn't even like me. She used to go home and tell her husband, why do I get these women? I don't like her. Why does God keep playing these tricks on me? But the one thing that she was always sure was that she loved me. And what she loved in me was what she called the little girl in white. That, that little place that's inside all of us that I heard a speaker say one time, that little spark of decency that's left no matter how far down the line you've gone. And she nurtured that little girl in white and she brought her back to life. And the way she did it was that she gave me the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and said, read it. And I said, I can't. So she read it to me. She sat me down and she read that book to me. And she gave it to other people to read to me. And eventually, all of the obnoxiousness, all of being belligerent, and all of that stuff that I walked in started fading away. And I started saying, you know, I really am powerless over alcohol. And my life really is unmanageable. And I really can't do this anymore. And it doesn't matter that I'm 21 years old. And it doesn't matter that I'm female. And I've slept in enough gutters. Thank you. All I want to do now is not hurt anymore, and I don't want to drink anymore. And I believed what she had told me on that first day. I believed that I really didn't ever have to drink again. She told me that this program is not a little revolving door, that we've already been through all the revolving doors. Now it's time to do something about it. And I said, how do I do it? She said, you sit down and you shut up because there's nothing that you have to say right now that we haven't already heard and that we want to hear again. Why don't you listen? Why don't you listen because we have already been there. And so she read the book to me and she introduced me to the steps. And I, and I can't say that from that time forward I have remained completely willing because that's just not true. I, you know, I can tell you about pain, but I can also tell you about the grace of God. I can tell you about the times when I should have been picking up a drink, but because God had something else in store for me, I didn't. I had conversations with people when I first got into treatment that I don't remember, and I was stone-cold sober. I mean, for months. And they'd come back and go, how's your brother? i go, which one? What are you talking about? And they'd and they tell me these things that were so, so dishonest. And I... And the, you know, I just have to tell them I lied. <laughs> I don't have a younger brother. I never have. <laughs> I've always been a baby. And, and I, uh, I found out about the leveling of pride. You know, it's pride that stood in my way of why I didn't want to come in today. False pride. I've learned something about being proud about the kind that I think God wants me to be because God has given me an awful lot of things to give back to this world. And if I don't use them, then I'm denying Him. The reason why they were given to me is to glorify God. It's, it's so easy and, and comes so easily for me to talk about God today, and that was not always so. I was terrified of Him. I did, I did some horrible things out there. I mean, I did some things that were offensive to other people. I did some things that were extremely offensive to me, and I did things that were offensive to God. And, and that was fine that Pat, my sponsor, had a loving God, but it wasn't going to work for me because she hadn't done the things that I had done. 
Well, after I took my fourth step, and, and, and I might add that the way that I took my fourth step was she had me come over to her house, and she said, you know, it's, it's a two-person step. One person prays, and the other person writes. I wanted to pray. <laughs> she said, wrong again. I said, do I ever say anything right? And she said, I don't, I don't remember anything. <laughs> And I thought, okay, this woman hates me, you know, but I kept going back, you know. I, I, she was the inventor of tough love, and that's exactly what I needed. I think different people need different things, you know. Some people need it softly. I don't need anything softly. I don't understand softly, and I will annihilate you if you try softly with me. And she knew that, but she also knew how to wrap her arms around me and show me about the love of God. And when I was working on that fourth step and I was coming up with these things that literally made me want to throw up, she would send me back to the third step and remind me the reason why I did it is because I'm clearing that channel. And I would tell her, you know, I wish I could be like you. And she said, work the steps. And I'd say, but I want to be like you. And she'd say, work the steps. It doesn't come overnight. You have to work at it. It tells you about that in the big book. You can't rest on your laurels. And I wanted to rest on my laurels. And she wouldn't let me. So she was at the top of my resentment list. <laughs> and she informed me that that's when she knew that it was a thorough inventory. <laughs> and in the way, you know, we took the fifth step and it was there that I found out that she didn't know where I came from. She had done the things that I had done. And that, you know, we could have taken my fourth step that I still have today and write anybody's name on it in this room, and it would probably be the same. Yes, the people's names may be different, and the circumstances may be a little bit different, but it's all the same things because it's about us. It's not about all those other people, and it's not about those circumstances. It's about us. You know, that God gave us instincts for a purpose, and we take them far out of proportion. And that's what got me in the trouble that I was in. And that's what led me to drinking. And that's what, after the alcohol was out, I was still left with. And after I took my fifth step, boy, when they said, be entirely ready to have God remove those defects of character, I was so ready to have them removed. Every single one of them after I had seen what that had done to other people and what it had done to me and how it had offended God. And all I wanted to do was just be perfect. <laughs> that's another character defect. And it doesn't work that way, not because God's not capable of doing it. The 12 and 12 talks about that. God is perfectly capable of doing it. And he gave us everything that we need to do that with, too, but he also gave us self-will. So on a continual basis, you know, I went and, and I made those amends to those people and I cleared out the wreckage of my past. And on a daily basis, I have to take that inventory, and it's the same thing that comes up every single time. You know, it's always the same things. They're easier to spot today than they used to be, but they're still there. And I have to ask to have them removed. And the reason why I have to ask to have them removed is because you cannot give away something that you don't have. And if I'm not giving away what it is that has been so freely given to me in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to drink again. And the one thing I've always been sure of since I got sober was that I don't want to drink again. What it means is that I've got to give of me, and that's that channel that I've been working on for 10 years so that when the next suffering alcoholic walks through those doors, I'm there. 
so that I give away what's been given to me and that I carry the message and the message is in this book. The message is you never have to drink again as long as you live. And it's a one day at a time proposition. And it's contingent on your spiritual progress that you can't stop, you can't sit down and say, well, I've done really well for a couple years. I think I'll take a break. And, and I've done that. And I know what it's like to be drunk and I know what it's like to be sober, and I know what it's like to be dry. You know, I've seen some old-timers, quote, in this program, and I hope to God I'm not like them when I get up there, that I hope that I don't have in me all those things that I think I don't have to work on this anymore because I've arrived. I have not arrived, and I hope to God I never feel like I've arrived. I hope that it's always important to me to be there for the next suffering alcoholic with my crap out of the way. There's been nothing that's been more pleasing to me than to watch other people that have come into the program since I've been in and to, and to watch. They, they talk about that in the big book and working for others. You know, watching things change in their life. Watching them return to society. I, I sponsor a girl that um, some of y'all know her. She was here the last time I was here, Mary, that is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I can bask in the glow of what she's got going with God. And on those days when I need to be rejuvenated, I can go to her because she gives it back to me and that's how it works. I wanted to know what God looked like when I got here. I wanted to know how he felt and how was I supposed to turn my will and my life over to his care if I didn't know who he was. And now I know who he is. And the way I found him was I found him in me. That little spark of decency, that little girl in white, that little voice that kept saying, yeah, you can, is God. And there's no amount of alcohol and no amount of drugs that can ever take him away. When I'm making that big intellectual leap after about five years, I said, if he's in me, then he must surely be in y'all. And that's what the newcomer feels when they walk in these doors. You know, that's what goes on when you go back and you tell the people in your family, I don't know what goes on there. There's just, they've got something. I don't know what it is, and I don't know how to explain it. You'll just have to go with me. You know, it, it's God going across here. It's all of us ought to be levitating. <laughs> you know, he's here. Like it or not. Okay, and I know there's people out there like, I don't want to hear what she has to say about God. She's cute, got a great story, but I don't want to hear about God. Well, God is what it's about, and that's what's in each one of us, and that's what each time that we reach out to another alcoholic, each time, you want to know why hugs feel so good? Because you're touching God. You're touching God every time you reach out and put your arms around another person, and it's not just alcoholics. You know, we get it here. They teach it here. We take it out there. Practice these principles in all our affairs. It doesn't say just with alcoholics. It doesn't just say for an hour at a meeting. It says practice these principles in all our affairs. And everything will fall into place. I came in here almost completely rum-dumb. I mean, I am a real alcoholic. I couldn't even read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am in my second quarter of law school. That is the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I walk out of those lectures, some of which I don't understand, and some of which I do, 
but always grateful that for whatever reason, I'm not one of those that dies of alcoholism. And that not only have I been given a second chance, but he, he restored my sanity, he restored my brain, and he put me into a helping profession. And I, I, I am blown away. You know, I, last quarter, I didn't do well. And it was okay. It was okay because I shouldn't even be there. You know? I'm like, so? I am not the top 10% of my class. But I sure have an awful lot of good stuff going on in my life. And it's all going to be taken care of. You know, there's a song that all of y'all that, that know me have heard me refer to that says, Be not afraid. I go before you always. That's God for me. And he does. He clears whatever path that needs to be cleared. And he softens whatever heart that needs to be softened. And he helps us professors understand that I'm slow. But I'm real consistent. <laughs> and, and I think that that's a lot better than genius. You know, and when I do do something that every once in a while this splash of brilliance comes through and my hand's up in the air and I'm thinking, oh God, why am I doing this? And the professor calls on me and I come out with something brilliant and I look around and think, who did that? <laughs> you know, last quarter I found out how I am without God because I took time out to study and I took time out to be scared to death and I didn't take time out for God. And, uh, and as a result, I didn't do very well. But as a result, I also got real weird. And I'm not that way this quarter because I stopped and remembered where I came from and why this works. And that where I get it back is when I come here. You know, I, I have been so fortunate. I have talked all over the United States, not because I'm a brilliant speaker, but because I've been given a talent by God, and every one of us have a talent. Every single one of us do. And whoever it is that makes a great cup of coffee that I can't do is just as important as I am. I feel extremely fortunate that I'm asked to do this because I meet people. I meet people like Michael, that Michael has stayed in touch with me for over a year now. I mean, people just didn't do that before. You know, they were so glad to get rid of me, and he loved me. You know, there are people out there that, honest to God, love me, and I let them. I let them because I know that it's important that I let them love me because it's important for their growth and it's important for my growth and because this program works. You know, I am, I, I, you know, I hope I don't have to tell people how it works. I hope that I take it to heart that I'm the only big book that they may ever see and that just by my actions it's enough. I hope that that's true. But I'm also grateful that I'm given the opportunity to say it. Because I know I'm terrified before I get up here. But I know how I feel when I finish. And I know how I feel when I look out there and I see all of y'all looking back at me. And realize how much the program has grown. And how every time that you pick up the big book, it says something different. Okay? It doesn't change. It's still the same thing. You know, the little big book gremlins don't go in there and change things around. It's still the same. But maybe I've changed. And one of the things that I read today was a part at the end of that on page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us.
Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who's still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. There's a little footnote on a couple of pages before then that says this was written in 1939. In 1987, there are about 73,000 groups of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's an AA activity in 114 countries with an estimated membership of over 1 million sober alcoholics. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past and give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless and keep you until then, and thank you. I love you all.